Welcome to the BMJ podcast. The festive season is upon us, and whilst you're pondering Christmas decorations, at BMJ Towers we're working hard on the ever-popular Christmas edition, only two weeks to wait. As we've done in the last few years, we've chosen a charity for our Christmas appeal. This year it's Doctors of the World, and next week we'll be hearing about their work in East London, where they're helping the dispossessed back into health. But this week, we start with their international work, concentrating on Syria. Richard Hurley finds out more. Syria is still in the grip of a violent civil war that started in March 2011. In those two and a half years, the death toll has passed 120,000, and the UN estimates that some 9 million men, women and children are in need, including 2 million refugees who have fled the country, 1 million of them children. Few expected the conflict to last so long or to be so bloody. Healthcare professional volunteers coordinated by the charity Doctors of the World deal not only with the injuries people have sustained directly from the conflict, but also infectious disease outbreaks and the chronic and day-to-day primary healthcare needs of those forced to flee their homes, many of whom are living in refugee camps. Earlier this week, I spoke to three healthcare professionals who have been volunteering for Doctors of the World, helping those in refugee camps and others displaced by the war. Health facilities and medical professionals have found themselves targets in this war, so I won't include their names or exactly where they are working for their own protection. I asked one doctor who's been working recently in camps in the north of Syria what the refugees' biggest needs are now. Uh, the, now the m- biggest problem is uh, for the cold. They want to get wintering kits, uh, blankets, uh, more uh, tents, etc. Because a lot of camps were c- created during the summer and never get blankets and this, and that issue. Uh, then uh, about food, there's also uh, a shortage of uh, food, especially essential food, which uh, is protein, meats, etc. Yes, they are suffering of shortage in the food. There are uh, indeed a lot of organizations taking care about sanitation and drainage. But because the camps is uh, getting bigger so quickly, the NGO couldn't uh, the organization to give the total uh, needs of people on time. And of course, when you have so many people together with poor sanitation, infectious disease is a huge potential problem. Uh, We are now so afraid about polio. We never uh, see a patient with polio in, in the north of Idlib, in our camp, but we know that in their Zor, in other in other uh, part of our country, there are about uh, more than 25 uh, children who got polio. So that uh, we are now uh, in coordination with MSF in charge to making uh, a big campaign for polio vaccination. Another volunteer I spoke to helps give healthcare to the refugees in the huge Satari camp just inside Jordan and now home to more than 100,000 Syrian refugees. She told me that as the conflict continues, 
It is now treatment for chronic conditions that need strengthening. At the beginning, um, in emergency context, nobody goes to think about non-communicable diseases. You know, it's a chronic conditions and nobody was thinking that the situation will persist like this. Zatarikam was established one year and a half ago and it was not expected neither for uh, the government or the people inside. So we need more developed programs to target chronic diseases as well as mental health. And it's not just disease which makes these camps unsafe. A pharmacist working in the camps in northern Syria explained the violence she sees occasionally erupt. All the people now, their own weapons, their own guns. So sometimes if they have any fights, even if it's simple one, they will use their guns. So sometimes for the woman and child, they're totally afraid when some people start to shoot each other. So it's not totally safe. Right. In the camps. I heard from the midwife, uh, she's working in the clinic inside, that once there was a fighting and all the people in the tent, they just want to move from the camp and run for anywhere. <laughs> they don't know exactly where to run, but they just want to move. And we have, because of the social uh, psychiatric things, the people are, they have a lot of stress inside, inside themselves. And they feel angry, they feel stressed. So it's so easy for them to use the guns. It's a strange, but it's not safe a place in the camps. And sometimes we have dead people because of this fight. Unfortunately, we lose some people. And a final word from the volunteer in the Satari camp on the work of Doctors of the World. We are always in, in need for uh, more drugs, more uh, equipment, especially that uh, we are reputable in South Jordan, and uh, we are respected by refugees. They trust our staff uh, because we, we, we are more on the humanitarian side. We, we care, you know, so we are so trusted and respected by refugees. So it's a, it's a matter of our responsibility to always have what's, what, 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 what's needed. Uh, there are always unmet needs, I think, because uh, services provided are good, but it's not uh, up to to the increased need. A donation of £50 could help provide 10 families with hygiene kits or blankets. £100 could provide psychological consultations for 20 Syrian refugees. We very much hope that you will donate to support the work of Doctors of the World and details of how to do so are on bmj.com. Thank you very much. And if you're in the UK, you can donate £10 by texting DOCTOR to 70030. That's text DOCTOR to 70030. Now, the latest clinical review on bmj.com looks at polymyalgia rheumatica. Sophie Cook asks Sarah Mackey how she explains this difficult-to-quantify condition to patients. I'm joined on the phone today by Dr Sarah Mackey, rheumatologist at Leeds Teaching Hospitals Trust. Sarah is also one of the authors of this week's BMJ Clinical Review on Polymyalgia Rheumatica. Sarah, thanks for joining me today to discuss your review. First of all, I'd like to talk a little bit about how common a problem is PMR. Really quite common. Um, It's mainly treated in primary care. It affects perhaps about 1% of the, the over 50s. 
there, there's recently been some um, studies on lifetime risk from the Mayo Clinic in, in America, and it affects perhaps one in 40 women over the lifetime and one in 60 men. So it's, it's, it's fairly common. Do we know what causes polymyalgia? We don't know what causes it. Um, there are various theories. Some um, theories suggest that it might be an immunological um, response to maybe a viral trigger, but it's probably more to do with the host response than any specific virus. So it's not an infectious disease. It's perhaps the way the body's responding to um, to some sort of trigger like an infection or a stressful event or something like that. But it's, it's really not known whether the trigger is the same for everybody. It's probably not. And, um, and how that actually works. So GPs probably see quite a bit of polymyalgia in the community. But what are the main clinical features of the disease that they should be aware of? So this is a condition that um, tends to come on really suddenly, um, in some cases virtually overnight, um, tends to manifest as bilateral, severe pain and stiffness, particularly around the shoulder girdle, but also neck and hips are, um, are frequently involved as well. Um, and there tends to be systemic inflammation, so almost always the um, inflammatory markers are elevated um, and the patient will feel unwell in themselves with it. It's often accompanied by systemic symptoms, including sometimes flu-like symptoms, which may or may not be true flu. It may be the condition itself rather than, rather than an actual viral infection. Polymyalgia can mimic some other conditions um, and I think GPs sometimes get concerned about confidently diagnosing this in the community and starting treatment. What investigations should be performed to help confirm the diagnosis and how can GPs confidently diagnose this in the community? The first step is evaluating the patient and doing a complete history and physical examination to establish whether the picture really is classical for polymyalgia rheumatica. Um, If it's atypical then that should prompt particular investigations to follow up those things. There are some investigations which the British Society for Rheumatology recommends should be done in everyone and this includes um, thyroid function tests because hypothyroidism can produce a sort of joint stiffness um, or muscle stiffness type collection of symptoms. So thyroid function, creating kinase, um, particularly if they're patients on a statin, basic blood tests such as urine, electrolytes, liver function tests or blood count. If there's any ESR um, or has viscosity is high, then a myeloma screen, so serum um, protein electrophoresis can be useful to do just to make sure that there isn't a monoclonal band and urine bent stones protein. Sometimes malignancy can present a bit like polymyalgia. So um, if there's any particular cause for concern, then again, history and examination, possibly a chest X-ray. Similarly, if there's concerns about infection, then a directed search for infection based on the particular patient presentation. But I think one of the reasons it's so difficult is that we can't recommend a shopping list of every investigation that's going to rule out every other condition. And clinical judgment is really the key to it in clinical experience, um, which is why GPs are often very good at evaluating patients suspected polymyalgia because they are very familiar with all the patient's rest of the medical history and they can make a considered judgment as to what um, differentials they think are going to be most likely. But it is important to consider the differentials rather than just going straight on to treatment without thinking really carefully. You mentioned in your review um, that there have recently been some classification criteria that have been developed by the European League of Against Rheumatic Diseases. Do you want to talk a little bit about those? 
So classification criteria are um, used a lot in rheumatology and what they're intended for is to make sure that patients who are recruiting to clinical trials can be compared so that we all know we're dealing with the same disease. And that's important in rheumatology because often there isn't a single diagnostic test for a lot of the diseases that we treat. Classification criteria are generally developed to be quite specific rather than catch-all. So they won't, they won't catch all the patients with, who truly have polymyalgia, but they might define the ones who might, we might want to recruit into clinical trials. So there are various ways of developing classification criteria, and this most recent attempt um, was an international collaborative study in which patients were recruited who had polymyalgia and compared with patients who were recruited with recent onset shoulder pain but who were not felt to have polymyalgia. So they really made the effort to make it reflect clinical practice as as far as they could within the constraints of their study design. And um, then they used various statistical techniques to draw out the features which seemed to be most strongly associated with having a diagnosis of polymyalgia rheumatica. And they came up with various points. Um, You can get points for different clinical features. um, And if you have a certain number of points, then then we say then the class, you can be classified as having polymyalgia rheumatica, but that's not diagnostic. They're not diagnostic criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, they are really to be used for research purposes rather than for clinical diagnosis. Okay. When we think about um, GPs making a diagnosis of polymyalgia, sometimes it's quite a difficult condition to explain to patients. I just wondered whether you have any tips or advice to GPs as to how you explain a new diagnosis of polymyalgia to a patient. I generally, when I'm talking to patients about this, I generally start with their own knowledge and their own experiences. So I, particularly for patients who had this very sudden onset of, of disease, they're puzzled by why they were you know, well last month and this month they feel really terrible and they can't do anything. And um, But then they take these tablets and it's amazing. Mm. And what I normally would say to them is that our immune system normally um, is set up so that it can fight bugs but that it doesn't fight the body itself but sometimes our immune system gets mixed up and um, decides that it's going to cause inflammation and in polymyalgia we don't know why that happens but it happens and the condition itself tends to last for months or years usually more years than months before it then goes away and that the best treatment that we know about at the moment to suppress that inflammation is steroids so it's trying to get across to the patients that what we're doing is we're suppressing the immune system um, a little bit to suppress the inflammation Um, and so then that can lead into a discussion about the pros and cons of the treatment and the side effects of the treatment um, and a discussion about how we manage that and mitigate for that because in the long term the um, the managing the treatment as is as important as, as managing the disease and and making sure that the the patient and the doctor work together to get the best dose of, of treatment for them based on their own particular preferences. So some patients will accept some pain and stiffness because they don't like the side effects of the steroids, whereas other patients, really, they can't be having a relapse. And so they um, are often maintained on a slightly a slower reduction of, of steroids um, to reduce the risk that their symptoms will return. So it's 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 trying to to set up for that discussion about how how those symptoms are going to be managed and balancing the pros and cons of the treatment really 
Sarah, are there any symptoms that you warn patients about when they have a new diagnosis of polymyalgia? Well, up to 10% of patients with polymyalgia may also um, develop giant cell arteritis, and that's a treatable cause of blindness. So um, it's really important that patients are informed about possible symptoms of giant cell arteritis so that they can get evaluated by a, a doctor promptly. So I tell patients about um, giant cell arteritis symptoms, including headache, scalp tenderness, jaw claudication, so trouble chewing, um, jaw pain, and visual symptoms, including double vision and um, transient visual loss. Giant cell arteritis can also present atypically with sort of funny head and neck symptoms. So I generally sort of reassure patients that if they do have any sort of strange, odd symptoms that are new, that um, it's very reasonable for them to, to, to get seen by a doctor that same day just to have a clinical evaluation and to have that ruled out and that's a very reasonable reason to have an urgent appointment with their doctor um, and if it happens at the weekend then um, they could go to their you know, local out-of-hours services or, or hospital um, and then it, that's, that's okay too that they don't have to wait till the next working day to go and get themselves seen if they're getting visual loss or some other serious potentially serious symptoms like that. Okay, thinking a bit more about steroids, when a GP is thinking about initiating this therapy, what sort of doses should they be thinking about and how quickly should they be titrating up? So the British guidelines that are out at the moment suggest 15 to 20 milligrams prednisolone. And there's an argument for starting at the lower end of that, starting 15 milligrams, because um, response to steroids is very useful to confirming a diagnosis. But if you give a larger dose, then the value of response to steroids to the diagnosis test becomes less specific. Polymyalgia typically does respond pretty well to 15 milligrams dose. So I normally recommend at least starting at 15 milligrams of prednisolone, although in some patients that may need to be increased a little bit. Generally, it's reduced a little bit quicker initially. So if you start at 15 milligrams, or even if you start on 20 milligrams, you might aim to be on 10 milligrams after about four to eight weeks or so. And then following that, the reduction is more gradual. There's a lot of discussion about how fast the reduction should be once you get down to about 10 milligrams. So really the key is individualizing into the particular patient based on the whole clinical picture and their wishes and preferences too. Are there any other treatment options available for, say, those patients who have been on steroids for a very long time or those who don't respond to steroids? There has been um, a little bit of work done on steroid-sparing drugs, so drugs that we that we use in other conditions in rheumatoid, like rheumatoid arthritis. So the one that there's been most evidence on is methotrexate, um, but there has been um, only very small randomised controlled trials of this. Many clinicians would consider that methotrexate is a very reasonable option, and um, other clinicians would say, well, perhaps it's not polymyalgia at all and perhaps we should look at whether it's another inflammatory disease and again methotrexate um, is a good treatment for many of those for example rheumatoid arthritis so if there's a feeling this might be actually uh, a persistent inflammatory disease like rheumatoid arthritis then methotrexate again would perhaps be a good option so I think it's reconsidering the diagnosis and then looking at the sorts of treatments that have been used albeit with limited evidence at the moment for those. And then if we think about which patients should be referred to rheumatologists, um, what recommendations would you give from that point of view? I think 
the referral it would be recommended for patients where the GP isn't quite sure of the diagnosis because the alternative would be treating them and then they get better but they're not really being sure what they had and then particularly if it's difficult to get them off steroids later it's really really hard to evaluate them at a later date from the rheumatologist's point of view but of course that has to be seen in context of what the local service provision is and if patients have to wait 18 weeks that's probably not ideal for them to wait without treatment mm. for 18 weeks so I think it depends on the local service that's available in an ideal world we see everybody but I don't know if you know, that resources really permit that so, and then the other group of patients who GPs often want help with are the ones who they're finding it hard to get off the steroids and those are very challenging for us all to manage um, and can be very frustrating for the patient as, as well if they want to come off their steroids. Great. And finally, just a little bit about the prognosis in polymyalgia. What do you tell patients about that? So I like to be encouraging. and I like to tell them that in the great majority of patients, the polymyalgia will go away in time um, and that the average length of patients in our clinics to be on treatment is two years although in primary care it may in fact be a bit shorter. We, we need a bit more data on that really. Um, some people unfortunately do need to be on steroids for longer than that and in that case we do think about other, other treatments to add in as we were talking about before. Um, I also tell them that um, sometimes what looks like polymyalgia rheumatica at the start can develop a little bit and some patients some patients eventually get a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. I don't tell all patients that. I tend to tell patients that who I think have some atypical features or some features consistent with rheumatoid arthritis. What I think is important is trying to be positive and reassuring, but at the same time telling them what to, to watch out for, particularly from the giant cell arthritis point of view. Great. Sarah, thanks for talking to us today. That's all for this week. As I said earlier... Next week, we'll be hearing more from Doctors of the World about their work in East London to help undocumented migrants and others access vital NHS services. We'll also be starting our Christmas fair, so make sure you come back next Friday. If you've enjoyed this and want to find more from our back catalogue, or indeed from any of the other podcasts that we do, check out podcast.bmj.com. Thanks for listening.